All right, Jesse, last week gave me a whole new perspective on Boston. What's the story this time around? Two men who were rumored to love the same woman went skeet shooting in the woods in 1976. But only one of those men came back alive. It would take 20 years and advances in forensic technology for the true events of what happened that tragic day to be revealed and for the murderer to be brought to justice. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Andy. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about quirks, jerks, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help us help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And speaking of Patreon, we are absolutely thrilled this week to welcome and shout out a new set of wonderful patrons. Welcome to Taryn D, Rachel N, and Maria H. Hi, guys. Hi. I'm having a very emotional morning. (sighs) I don't know if any of you guys could relate to the, your kid going off to kindergarten. I thought I was prepared for, you know, two years of preschool. But here we are, and I have been a teary, snotty mess all morning. So I'm just really glad that I get to be hanging out with you, Andy. And <laughs> I'm going to tell you all a story of love and murder that will distract me until I can go pick her up and see how her day was. So we are trying to, like, wedge this recording in between my drop-off my getting some Starbucks to cheer myself up and (laughs) then finishing this episode so I can immediately go pick her up and then we can go like stress eat some bagels or something together. It'll be a celebration bagel for her, a stress bagel for me. (laughs) So if any of you guys have kids going off to kindergarten or I can't even say it, I can't say college, just know that my heart is with you this year. With that emotional statement behind me, I think we should jump into the emotional story at hand. June 2nd, 1976 was a beautiful day in Montrose, Pennsylvania. 30-year-old Marty Dillon was finishing up some contract work that he was performing as his job was being an attorney. It was Wednesday, which meant that he and his boys, the Wednesday Afternoon Club, would be getting together to shoot clay pigeons on a plot of land that his parents owned and had affectionately nicknamed Gunsmoke. So Marty had moved back to his hometown after finishing law school. He had brought his stunning wife, Pat, back with him, although she was not new to the area. The two had actually grown up together. Pat had been one year behind Marty in high school. However, they did not connect romantically until they were both in Philadelphia for college. Well, after he finished law school, they had come home and then they had had two absolutely gorgeous children. Son Michael was five and daughter Suzanne was just weeks away from turning three. So it's basically my kid's age. So you can just see how cute they are. Marty was a partner at one of the finest law firms in the county. He lived close by his parents who were themselves fixtures of the community. His father, Larry, was the mayor of their town. 
He had a beautiful job, a beautiful life, beautiful kids, and a close-knit family. And Wednesday afternoons, he would spend the afternoon shooting skeet with his friends, drinking beer, maybe having a little barbecue, and just hanging out. So who could ask for anything more? Do you think that they had t-shirts that said Wednesday Afternoon Club or whack. <laughs> I think I think it was it was I think it was unofficial. I don't know if they were going around being like, "Hey, Wednesday Afternoon Club guys." What about Wink. koozies? Like, I feel like koozies are. You know like what? A... They should have had koozies. Yeah, okay. that would have been a merch fail if they hadn't had koozies. Speaking about merch fail, maybe we should get some koozies. Koozies are cool. We need some koozies. Well, today maybe he wished more members of that unofficial Wednesday Afternoon Koozie Club could attend. One by one, they had all bagged off, citing familial or professional obligations, until it appeared that it would just be Marty and 36-year-old Dr. Stephen Shear. Marty had become acquainted with a doctor some four or five years earlier when his nurse wife, Patty, worked with Stephen at the Montrose General Hospital. The two men had hit it off, with Stephen helping to remodel the Dillon's basement into a rec room. Soon, the couple began to socialize with the doctor and his wife, Anne, a whip-smart microbiologist and dog breeder who often won prizes at dog shows for her purebred Newfoundlands. Whoa. Those dogs are big. Those are some Newfies. They're giant. They're like big black bears. (laughs) Eventually, Stephen had become a member of the club, one of Marty Dillon's inner circle, something akin to best friends. Though Marty had several very close friends. He was one of those guys that had several best friends. He was just that kind of guy. So why would Marty be bothered that on this particular Wednesday, it would just be Stephen and himself? Well, some tongues had been wagging in town that the good doctor was just a little too close to his favorite colleague, pretty nurse, Patty Dillon, who happened to be Marty's wife. Hmm. Marty did not take stock in those things usually, but when the gossip had reached his parents and they had said something, well, now he had a problem. Yeah, that's like, that's like means it's on Facebook, you know. <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> especially with his dad being the mayor. His dad had come to him and said, I am hearing a lot of reports about some hanky-panky going on and you need to get your house right, son. So when that happened, Marty was like, okay, this is something that I have to face, obviously. He had confronted Pat, who had assured him that if something had been going on, it was in the past. It wasn't going to happen anymore. There'd be no more flirtation or whatever had been going on. Patty was a devout Catholic. She loved Marty. She loved her family. And she would never have given it up for a passing sexual interest or flirtation. It was over, she said. It is over, Marty thought, putting his shotgun into his BMW and beginning to drive to pick up Dr. Shear, his good friend, Stephen. It ends today. Two men in the prime of their lives would walk into the woods of Gunsmoke, but only one would walk out. What happened that horrible day would initially be ruled an accident. However, gut instincts, innuendo, and troubling pieces of contradictory evidence would haunt a family and community for almost two decades before a body was exhumed, and the secrets from the grave would tell a very different story. Whoa. Which brings us right to our primary source today, the book Secrets from the Grave. <laughs> a clever little tie in there by Maria Eftimiades or Eftimiades. She's actually a really great true crime writer. I don't know if I've covered any of her work before. I don't think so. I've never heard that name. 
Yeah, I don't think I have, but I'm going to look up some more books by her because I felt like she did a very compelling, straightforward narrative without putting herself into it and without sparing any of the important details, which is very nice for a reference, of course, for me, but also a reading experience. I also had the pleasure of watching everybody's favorite show, Forensic Files. Oh, you bitch. (laughs) We're going to be together soon. We have a couple um, hotel dates coming up, so we'll watch Forensic Files together. This episode was from season three and called Grave Evidence. One of my employees that I travel with won't watch Forensic Files with me when we're in hotels, and it, like, Uh, really upsets me. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. You're fired. I guess that'd be an improper termination. I think so. On the complaint. Won't watch forensic files in hotels. <laughs> My HR department, aka Quincy, would be very upset. <laughs> okay, so we've already talked a little bit about Marty and Pat Dillon. So let's go back and we'll talk about Dr. Stephen Shear and his wife, Anne. Stephen was born on May 10th, 1940, into a Jewish family in Toronto, Canada. Stephen was the firstborn, and his sister Susan was born a couple years later. The Shears immigrated to the United States. Around the time that Stephen was eight, I believe they moved to Florida, but tragically, his father died of a heart attack only three years later. Oh. Yeah, so he was only 11 years old. They were quite young. Stephen became determined to succeed after this loss, and he set his sights on becoming a doctor. This was something he wanted to do to make his mother proud. He had a drive to help people, but he also wanted to make money. He wanted to be professionally successful. He began attending University of Miami, working towards a pre-med degree, undergraduate at this point, but he was again struck by tragedy when his mother died of breast cancer during his first semester of undergraduate. Oh my God. Yeah, so he is 18 years old, and at this point, both parents have deceased. His younger sister was still in high school, and she had to go live with an aunt. This was a very difficult time in his life, and I think it would be hard for anyone Even if you are technically an adult, 18, you're on that cusp of child to adult. And it's still, even as an adult, there's nothing to prepare you for the loss of both of your parents. So yeah, he became emotionally unmoored, but he was more academically driven than ever. He wanted to do his parents proud. He wanted to help take care of his younger sister, obviously. When he was 20, he met a woman named Edna Ann Elias, who went by Anne, she was a botany and bacteriology student. Wow. Yeah. So she's a real smart cookie. The two struck up a deep romance, and it seemed like it moved very, very quickly. I think that they had some similar losses in their past, and they really bonded right away, as well as the fact that they were both very, very smart and into medicine and the sciences. So Stephen and Anne were married on June 9th, 1963, when they were both 23 years old. And Stephen at that point had one year of medical school under his belt. Anne supported Stephen during his med school years by working as a microbiologist. She worked long hours as a microbiologist. And Stephen helped repay the favor later on because she loved the farming life and breeding dogs and having a lot of newfies around. And so he supported her in showing her dogs and making sure that they had enough space in order to, like, house all of the animals and farm animals that they eventually had. Cool. So they spent a lot of time trying to find the perfect town to live in. Preferably, they wanted something rural, preferably East Coast due to the proximity of more prestigious dog shows, obviously a nice hospital setting for Stephen, and a place where they could really get some nice acreage 
because they wanted to set up a farm that would be their lasting legacy. They eventually decided on Montrose, Pennsylvania. They bought a beautiful 175-acre plot of land and built a farm. And it seems like initially they had some very happy years. However, the marriage started to decline in happiness, I believe, starting in 1968, so five years after they had been married. And then in 1971, Stephen suffered a heart attack. He was only 31 years old at the time. Oh, my God. And that was what his father had died of. So his wife, Anne, claimed that the life-threatening event had changed him and not for the better at that point. Kind of like a wake-up call. Yeah, something like that. And they're like, oh, I, it's a wake-up call in, in a way that aids a marriage that says I've maybe been taking this person for granted. I want to recommit myself to the marriage. Did not seem that was the case with this heart attack. She said, number one, that they stopped having any intimacy in the, the marriage. And he told her it was because he was afraid of having sex because he thought it might trigger a heart attack. Genuine concern, but is that I guess he would know if he's a doctor, if that's like a... You would think so. But we'll discuss later that he might have been having sex with other people. Yeah, so I guess so that's he was just a lie. Yeah. He was only selectively worried about it, it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could see how that would seem credible. I would too. Yeah. But Anne said also he became markedly selfish. He started saying that he didn't believe that he'd live past 45. So he was going to do whatever he wanted, when he wanted, when it appealed to him. And he didn't really care if she was happy about it or not, because it was his one life to live. He also liked the attention of being a doctor, that people were grateful to him and sucked up to him. So it wasn't like one of those, like, I only have a few years to live, so I'm not going to work thing. It was like, I'm going to throw myself into work because when I'm at work, they make me feel like a god. Yeah. Okay. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Some people said he was a bit arrogant. He began making weekend plans without Anne. And this was also during a very difficult time, too, because Anne had wanted to have a child and they were having a very difficult time conceiving. So they had been trying for many years. And then they had talked about adopting. I think that he was also a carrier for Ty Sachs. I think I don't know if that's exactly what it is, but it was um, a genetic disease. And so he thought that that maybe is why they weren't conceiving. And so they had decided that they were going to go forward with adoption. But as he started pulling away and she was handling all of the farm work, I think they had cows and chickens and all this acreage. She thought, well, how am I going to do all of this and be a microbiologist and do all of her dog stuff and have a baby on top of it if he's not going to help me or not? (laughs) That's exactly where the kind of the conclusion she came to because she's a scientist. She's kind of was went down the line rationally where I think a lot of us would respond emotionally like, I want a baby. And even though it's going to be hard, I'll just make it work. She was very rationally going through the steps and being like, okay, well, what would you do if the baby got sick? Like, who would stay home? And it was her, not him. And then she was like, okay, if we planned a trip to the Bahamas, and for some reason, the baby had to stay home, what would you do? And he's like, well, you would stay home with the baby and I'd go to Bahamas by myself. Well, that's not like normal, though. (laughs) And she was like, that's insane. Yeah, normally you'd just be like, we'd postpone the trip until everyone was well. Yes, yeah. So that was when she realized that parenthood was not in their future. And she really wanted to figure out 
how to get her marriage back on track. She was still in love with her husband, but she didn't know where things had taken such a left turn other than the heart attack. Yeah. Well, around the time that the Cher's marriage began to suffer, a brand new nurse had started working with Stephen at the hospital. Her name was Patty Dillon, and she was quite the looker. Patricia Carveller, as she had been known before her marriage to Marty, was the firstborn daughter of staunch Catholic Polish-Italian parents. She had been the only baby until she was a girl of 12, and her parents had adopted her baby brother, Robbie, at that point. Patty was a beautiful, bright, and very special little girl who grew up into a lovely young woman. She was very princessy. Some people described her as spoiled. One example from the book was that she was the only girl other than the actually crowned prom queen who wore a tiara to prom. Okay. Patty's mom, Laura, had instilled in her early that she needed to marry a respectable man. And in her estimation, no one was more worthy than a doctor. According to the book Secrets from the Grave, Laura spoke so often about Patty marrying a doctor that friends described her mother as a firm believer in the adage, it's just as easy to love a rich man as a poor man. Nothing, it seemed, was good enough for her daughter. In fact, there was more than a little speculation, more than a a couple comments, that Patty had pursued nursing to put herself in a good position to meet a medical man. Well, that didn't end up happening, at least not for many years. She instead met Marty Dillon, who was just as good, because Marty was planning on becoming an attorney. And we're talking about 1950s mothers here. A doctor is great, but a lawyer's up there too. Yeah. For sure. It was like back in the old days where it's like the only way to like a respectable amount of money is being a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a different world we live in now. So different. Marty was almost exactly six years younger than Dr. Shear, which is crazy because Stephen was May 10th, 1940, and Marty was May 11th, 1946. Whoa. Yeah, pretty close. He was the son of a World War II vet named Larry Dillon, who worked as a car salesman, amongst other jobs, and his wife, Josephine, whom everyone called Joe. The family welcomed another Joe, their daughter, Joanne, a couple years after Marty. So they also are both firstborn boys with younger sisters, only around two, two and a half years younger than them. So it's easy to see why these two guys would become friends. It seems like they have potentially a lot in common. They've got Similar family backgrounds, although Stephen has lost his parents and Marty is still very close to his. Uh, Younger sisters, they're both professional men in a smaller community. The Dillon family was exceptionally close. They had grown up hunting, fishing, swimming, camping together. They had a very special time at Gunsmoke where basically Larry had taught his son, Marty, all about hunting and and gun safety from a very early age as it was a pastime of the family. So if you're involved in something like that, you would probably educate your children very early on gun safety. Marty grew into a kind, smart, successful young man who loved car racing, especially NASCAR, and his family in equal measure. His high school girlfriend said that their date nights usually involved hanging with Marty's family in some capacity. Like most boys that age wanted to do nothing but get out and go neck in a car or something like that. But she would have a date night with him where they would bake cookies with his grandmother. Really cute. It was a very wholesome family. Marty's parents were delighted when Marty graduated top of his class of high school and went to Villanova University. Marty declared his intention to go to law school 
And then he reconnected with a doe-eyed nursing student named Patty. Like I said, the two had been one year apart in high school, and both families were excited by this match. It's really nice that they're both in the same town, which means if they have children someday, they've got both sets of grandparents there. It's easy for holidays. And they genuinely liked the other person. Laura thought that Marty was a great guy. Obviously, he's on his way to becoming a trial attorney. That was what his goal was when he was in school at that point. And Patty was just adorable. And she was also having her own career. Being a nurse is an amazing career. So this just seemed like a perfect match. And both families were very excited about it. When Marty graduated law school and around the same time, I think it was like a month before, a month after he graduated, they also welcomed their first baby, Michael. That was when they decided to move back to Montrose. So they were right in the thick of it with their families back where they had both grown up. And they had had such a happy upbringing that it just seemed perfect. Okay, good. They bought a house only two doors down from Marty's sister, Joanne, and her husband. They went to church every Sunday with their families. Marty became the president of the local Lions Club, and he even started a racing club in the town. He and his friend Kendall Strawn would even go in on buying a race car together, and then they would hire a professional driver to drive it at races. Oh, it's like an actual race car. An actual race car that they went halfsies on. He was a huge, huge fan. So Patty went back to nursing part-time after having Michael, and she became a Lamaze trainer, which was like the shit back in the 1970s. It was like the peak of the Lamaze experience. And she loved it. She was very nurturing. She wanted to help bring babies into the world. She felt lucky to be able to work part-time and still have time to be a doting mother to her child. Yeah, that's awesome. Which is ideal, yes. She also liked the hustle and bustle of the hospital. And she liked being around her colleagues, but soon some thought that she might be just a little too close to one particular colleague. You guessed it. The doc. The doc. It seemed like Stephen and Pat met at a time when both were kind of undergoing growing pains in their marriage, I would say. We've already talked about Stephen and Anne and kind of where they were at emotionally, but Marty and Pat were not doing so hot either. It seemed like... Marty didn't even notice that there was problems at home, which is in itself a problem. Marty didn't seem to notice her or make time for her in her estimation. I think everything's really complex, too, after you have a child, because if you already were feeling like you're not getting enough time and attention in the marriage, you're certainly not going to get more after you have a baby. No, yeah. And she kind of felt like it seemed like everything came before her, his law practice, his family especially his family. I mean, think about those date nights. He always wanted to be doing things with his family, having dinners. They lived two doors down from his sister, for goodness sake. His racing, his friends, the Wednesday afternoon club. It was just really hard. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Patty wanting to be a woman who was a wife that was loved and revered and cherished, which is what she wanted. There's nothing wrong with having those desires as long as you can communicate them and work it out with your husband. What is wrong is when instead of working through those feelings in your own marriage, you instead project your desires or your desire to be desired onto somebody outside of your marriage. You're never going to fix your marriage by bringing a third person into it. (laughs) Yeah, unknowingly. Unknowingly, like where you're like, I'm welcoming this attention. Like there's something people always say, like you can have like 
a back of your mind like harmless crush. But if you let it get beyond where it, it breathes life into something that can be real, that's when you're in a danger zone. Yes, 100%. It seemed, though, that Stephen and Pat were platonic friends for quite a while before rumors of a physical affair happened. But it was plain as day to see that even before anything might have happened physically, that the coworkers had chemistry. As early as the fall of 1972, former nurses who had worked with Stephen and Patty recalled constant flirty banter between the two. At Hanukkah that year, 1972, Patty brought to work a present for Stephen every single day for eight days, which seems a little extreme for two colleagues. Yeah, I'd say. That's not just like, here's a, you know, gift card to Dunks. No. Yeah. It's like a wrapped present every day for eight days. (laughs) It's like wrapped perfectly with a bow. Yep. When Pat became pregnant with her and Marty's second child, the nurses said that they noticed the affection between the two even increasing, being like the doctor was very concerned about her, even though she had a totally healthy, normal pregnancy, that he was like following her around the hospital. And then one of the receptionists was shocked when after she gave birth to Suzanne that the doctor, who is not the father of this baby, so we think, canceled his entire day, canceled basically the clinic. So there's people coming in to like the clinic, the urgent care, who need to see a doctor. And he's like, no, I'm going to this other hospital to visit Pat, who just had a baby. And the receptionist was like, well, is there something wrong with the baby? Because he was technically, he was like a general doctor of the area. So he was the baby's pediatrician. He's like, no, I just have to check on the baby. She's like, it's a healthy baby. There's people here who need your help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when other people professionally are noticing weird things like that, it's bad. It's like gotten to a bad point already. If everybody who works with you is talking about it and finding it unnatural, then these are red flags. Where there's smoke, there's fire, as they say. Everyone started noticing this growing closeness between the two. Maria Eftemiades wrote, Joanne, the receptionist I was just telling you about, not not Marty's sister, a different Joanne, which was a popular name of the time, apparently. And many of the nurses shared their disbelief about the relationship developing between Dr. Shear and Patty Dillon. The doctor didn't exactly take pains with his appearances. He was overweight and dressed sloppily. Nurses whispered about his body odor and dirty fingernails. Ew, As a doctor, dude, clean your fingernails. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Oh, no. Joanne could not understand it. Marty's such a hunk, she often thought, and Dr. Shear is so unattractive. What does she see in him? Perhaps Patty Dillon saw in Stephen Shear the image her mother spoke of throughout her childhood, the man people looked up to by virtue of his profession, a doctor, a healer. It was, after all, supposed to have been her future. The pampered child, the talented teenager who turned heads, the helping nurse, and ultimately... Maybe the doctor's wife. Oh. Yeah. However, Marty did not seem to notice anything was wrong. They were all hanging out together all the time. And he, by other people's perception, did not seem to find a fault with how his friend and his wife were getting along. He was doing stuff with the family, helping Marty on remodeling projects. He was taking their son to go ice skating. I mean, he had become an honest-to-goodness close family friend at this point. It just feels so icky. He had wormed his way into this family. Now, people say that Marty considered this guy a good friend and he did not think anything untoward was going on because he was there a lot with them. But Anne 
Stephen's wife sure noticed. I think women notice more too. Of course. From the very beginning of the friendship, Anne suspected that her husband was having an affair with Pat Dillon. Stephen would tell Anne that she was jealous and crazy, that obviously he was close with both Marty and Pat, that she was completely out of line. And like if she tried to bring anything up or point out behaviors, he'd be like, what are you talking about? You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing everybody else. So Anne was forced to stand by and watch her husband whisper and laugh with another woman or be excluded from social events with the Dillons because he was hanging out with them so much that it's like, well, you can stay at home and not even come over or you can come and watch me like flirt with this woman. Oh, in front my of you. God. Yeah, that's nauseating. Yeah. Oh, that's so hard because you don't want to go because you have to watch. But then you're like, I kind of need to go because who knows what because would happen. Because if I don't, what if Marty's not there? What's going to happen if they're completely unchaperoned, which you shouldn't even have to chaperone grown ass adults. No, I know. This is another red flag. If you have to be put in this position in your marriage, clearly this is not a good marriage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Pat and Stephen were just as flagrant at their workplace. Stephen rearranged Pat's schedule so that the two of them would be working all the same shifts at the hospital together. When he was on call, he'd leave the hospital the Dylan's phone number. So one time, one of the receptionists had to call and she was like, Oh, this phone number looks familiar. And then she called it and Pat answered. And she was like, Oh, Pat, I must have had the wrong number. I'm trying to call Dr. Shear. And she's like, Oh, yeah, he's here. They're like, why is he at your house? Like in the middle of the day? Like the middle of the day because Marty's working. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. And Anne began catching Stephen in lies. So he'd say something like, I have to go to Syracuse for a medical conference. And then she would check his odometer later and see that he had only gone like 10 miles wherever he had gone. But it wasn't all the way to Syracuse. And then there was another time where he'd say he was working and then she'd go to like drop off something at the clinic and they'd be like, oh, no, he's off today. And she'd drive by Pat's house and his car would be parked out front. Oh, that's sloppy, sloppy, sloppy. They were not trying to hide this very well. Anne was, of course, growing increasingly frustrated and it came to a head at Christmas of 1974. So Pat had invited the sheriffs to spend the holiday with them. And of course, they live around their parents. So Marty's parents were there. I don't know if Larry and Joe were there, but I know at least Pat's mother was there. And somehow they got on the topic of schooling and subjects and what everyone had studied and if they'd gone to college or not. And at that point, Pat's mother, Laura, just unabashedly said, well, we sent Pat to nursing school and hoped that she might marry a doctor, like kind of like wink, wink. And Anne was just sitting there being like, I feel sick. Like this is this woman's mother. She's married to a wonderful man who is an attorney. And she's sitting here being like, oh, we really wish she would have married a doctor. Oh, well. Yeah. Like also my daughter's sleeping with your husband. <laughs> yeah. And she said she couldn't tell what Marty was thinking. She was like, how is Marty standing this? This is his mother-in-law in his home talking about this. Yeah, but you know how like certain stuff you just learn to zone out. Yes. And I think that's what Marty was doing. I think that this is something a lot of people do, but I feel like it's probably more even in men because they're taught to not have like reactions to things very strongly. Like, you just like kind of like are like, uh, I'm gonna let it go, be and stay stoic. Yeah, of course. And it's like you can only listen to someone say that so many times without it like being annoying that it's just better to 
this is just what they say. Like, this is what they always thought. Just disregard it. So Anne had that gut instinct that something was just very off here. I mean, she had all the evidence that she needed. And she had good reason to be concerned, though the affair was not sexual at the time at Christmas when they had made that comment. Yeah, I mean, allegedly, allegedly. I don't trust anybody's timeline about these events, but there's some evidence that it may have only been consummated a few weeks after Christmas. (laughs) So everyone's still married. Nobody should be doing this. We'll talk later about this timeline and if we think it's, it's real later on. After three years, allegedly, of growing affection, friendship, ongoing flirtation, the delicious weight and, you know, that can we, can't we, we shouldn't, we should push and pull, it seems like they finally succumb to their desires and the sexual betrayal occurred. This exploded their chemistry and flagrant affair to the next level. The illicit lovers began acting like teenagers, apparently, when they started banging. Soon, coworkers recalled seeing things that they wish they could forget. Oh, no. What? There was witnesses that said there was, like, one person that said that they came into, I think it was the drug room. And at one point, he had his hand up her skirt. There was another person that saw him full-on grope her breast on another occasion. There was this room called Room 13 that they kept going into and locking the door and staying in there for, like, 45 minutes to an hour. Nobody knew what they were doing in there. Oh, my God. It got real Grey's Anatomy up in here where all the doctors be fucking in the on-call room. They're making, like, the Montrose Hospital general hospital. That's what's going on here. Oh, my God. Patty and Steven were getting sneakier, too. So they were trying to find occasions to be alone together. Marty's friend Kendall recalled that Pat had called him up and said, you should totally ask Marty to go on this racing trip with you. And he was like, well, are you going to go? And she's like, yeah, of course. Like, any excuse. Like, I'll come with you. We'll leave the kids with the grandparents. It'll be really fun. And he's like, well, that does sound like a good time. Like, we could go to Florida. But when the time came, all of a sudden, she had thrown her back out. And she was like, you guys just go alone, have so much fun. And Steven's going to come over and like put my back in traction and make sure I'm okay. So Marty went on the trip and Kendall, his friend, was like, dude, don't you think that's fucked up? Don't you think it's weird that that guy has an excuse to be at your house and your wife just could not go last minute? Isn't that crazy? And he said that Marty very much like stopped the conversation in its track and was just like, he's my friend. That's my wife. I just don't want to talk about it. So Kendall was like, I guess he's in denial. Like, I guess we're not going to go there. Do you think that's what it is? I don't know. Marty tried for a very, very long time not to see what was right in front of his face. I don't also know if there was private conversations between him and Pat about what was going on or not going on. And he was the type of guy that would not give a shit what people thought. Like, I know my wife. I know what's really going on in my home. So... You don't have to come at me with it. Yeah. He would have defended her, but I also don't know when exactly it dawned on him that this might be more than gossip. Yep. Okay. I know that things got a little bit more intense when Steven decided to switch his concentration to allergies. He decided to become an allergist. And at that point, he named Pat, like, essentially his assistant and his head nurse in his allergy clinic. So they were working extremely closely together. And they also had to attend conferences and 
different training classes together, apparently, in this study of allergies. And this just gave them an excuse to be alone together again. Now they're on the road and they don't even have to worry about running into somebody they may know because, of course, everybody in this town knew her, her family, Marty's family. His dad's the freaking mayor. So now they get to leave again. And at that point, Anne said that she was like pretty much at the end of her rope with this whole thing. Maria Eftimedes wrote, in the spring of 1975, with the full-blown affair underway for several months, Stephen and Pat told their spouses that they were going to an allergy conference in Canada. Marty helped load his wife's suitcase into Stephen's car. If he suspected that anything was amiss, he didn't show it. But Anne did. She begged her husband not to go. She confronted him with what she'd been hearing about all the times he'd been spending with the young nurse. She pleaded with him to give their relationship another chance. Don't replace me with Pat, she sobbed. Please don't go with her. We could work together like we used to. I mean, she's also a microbiologist. They used to publish papers together. They used to discuss things together related to their fields of interest. It's just terrible. She said, take me, please, please take me. Stephen did not answer her and continued to pack for the trip. As his wife became almost hysterical, he just walked out on her. Later that day, in the bathroom, Anne found a vial of almost 40 yellow capsules of Nembatol. She had never seen them in the house before. She didn't take the pills, but she believed in her heart that her husband left them in the hope that she would. What is that? I think it's a sleeping pill or some sort of narcotic. But basically, it's something that if you take a lot of, you will die. Wow, that's horrible. Yeah, he wants me to make it easy for him, she thought in her despair. Meanwhile, apparently, so she's crying the whole weekend they're gone, and Stephen's in Toronto squiring Pat around and introducing her to some of his relatives who still lived there. Oh, my God. The end of the marriage was approaching. So that July, both couples ended up going to a resort in Wyoming where there was another allergy seminar. It seems like they had taken a couple trips alone, and at this point, I don't know which one of them it was. I'm assuming that it was Patty being like, hey, we can't keep doing this. We have to like at least take them on one of these trips so they see it's a real conference or something. So they brought their spouses. But shortly after they arrived, Pat and Steve left to take a class and Anne decided to go for a swim. She was halfway across the lawn when she ran into Marty. And he said, where are you going? And she said, to the pool, I need to blow off some steam and get some exercise. And she said at that point, Marty looked at her sadly and said, don't go over there. I wouldn't go over there if I were you. So, of course, that's the first thing she did. And instead of taking a class together, she saw that Stephen was reclining with Pat, massaging her legs at the pool of the resort they're staying in with their spouses. Oh, my God. Yeah, so at that point, Marty's just like, come on, come with me. I'm going to buy you a drink. And she was like, she didn't want anyone involved in this situation. She didn't want to, like, go have a drink with Marty and talk about their stupid cheating spouses. She was like, no, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want anything to do with this situation. I'm like, I'm mad. I think she was also mad that he hadn't been responding for so long. And now it's, like, in front of their face. And now he's finally responding. It's, like, kind of like, screw you, dude. Like, why didn't you keep your wife in check, too? Yeah, but everyone copes with it differently. Yeah, like she's responding by being aggressive, being confrontational, being communicative. And he has mostly been in denial. 
at that point, Marty said that he was trying to get different plane reservations. And I think also they're kind of like blaming the other person's spouse. Like, I think she's like mad at him because it's Pat doing this in her opinion. And he's like, I need to get my wife out of this situation. Like as if it's something Steven's doing to his wife. Yeah. You see like on shows like The Ultimatum, Andy and I sometimes love watching bad reality television together. Yeah, The Ultimatum is perfect. It's a perfect example where they're instead of like being mad at their spouse or their situation, their partner, they're like projecting it onto the person that they're having like the fake marriage with or like who might be interested. It's one of those situations. So I think that there was an impasse here. They're not exactly aligned about this, but it's clear that now Marty knows that something is very wrong and they didn't end up leaving. I don't think they ended up leaving. So they ended up like staying and it just being terrible and awkward the whole time. And then when they got home at that point and had already asked him before, are you in love with Pat? And he said, no, 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 you're crazy, of course. And this time she was like, you're in love with her. You just need to be honest with me. And he's like, yes, yes, I am. I'm in love with her and I don't love you anymore. Oh, arrow to the heart. Horrible. If you ever find yourself dragging and looking for a way to supercharge your daily focus and mental clarity, then we are so excited to share more about today's sponsor, Cognitive Switch by Juvenescence. You guys know that both of us are basically running at max speed all of the time between podcasts and other businesses and, of course, our wonderful little time demanders. It's pretty much a never-ending grind. Given that, finding ways to get an extra boost in focus and mental clarity without just completely mainlining coffee, espresso to the veins, is a total game changer. Cognitive Switch is a really unique product. Ketones are a type of evolutionary brain fuel that our bodies naturally produce when glucose is in short supply. Brains love them because they break down easily and produce a high amount of energy. Cognitive Switch's formula gives your body the building blocks to create its own ketones, the alternate and efficient fuel source your brain already loves, which is what makes that boost in your mental performance happen. Jesse, you've mentioned a few times already that Cognitive Switch has been a great pick-me-up when you're in the middle of script writing, right? Absolutely. And impressively, it actually tastes really good. Ketones are notorious for being bitter, but Cognitive Switch actually tastes great. There's also an awesome flavorless powder version that you can also mix into your favorite drinks. I have to say I really like this in the afternoon too because I have a very hard time getting to bed at night. And especially if I'm having that afternoon coffee caffeine pickup, this is just such a healthy alternate version that allows me to actually get my much needed rest in the evening. Cognitive Switch is clinically proven to get you into brain-boosting ketosis in just 30 minutes. It contains no sugar, no artificial sweeteners, no artificial colors or flavors, is stimulant-free, and has a low glycemic index. Here's the exciting part. Cognitive Switch just launched, and for a limited time, our listeners can enjoy a very special offer. Visit juvelabs.com slash lovemurder. That's J-U-V-L-A-B-S dot com slash lovemurder to get 20% off your order. Don't miss out on this opportunity to start your journey towards enhanced mental performance. Remember, by adding ketones to your routine with Cognitive Switch, you're doing something extra to support your brain. Unlock your brain's potential and experience the power of Cognitive Switch. Thanks again to Cognitive Switch for sponsoring today's episode. Now back to the show. Yeah, well, a month after that, in September of 1975, 
Stephen filed for divorce. And even worse was that he told Anne and other people that Marty was handling the divorce. And Anne was like, how can Marty do this when he knows why? And it was a lie. Marty wasn't handling his divorce. Marty's business partner, so one of the other guys in the practice, was handling the divorce. Oh, my God. But that's still weird. Still weird. And I think that the reason why Stephen went to Marty about it and then went with somebody in his law firm was for the appearance that Marty didn't think there was an affair. Even though he's getting a divorce, he's still siding with Stephen. That's what it would look like if he's representing him in the divorce. So he's doing this for optics. It would be my guess. Yeah, I would guess too. But it's just like kind of shady. Well, it definitely also drove a wedge between Anne and speaking to Marty about this at all. Because now she believes that Marty's going to be trying to take everything from her and representing her husband in this divorce after everything he's seen and knows. So she's like, what is wrong with this guy, you know? So now they're not going to be talking to each other and comparing notes because he has said that Marty's on his side and feels extra alone in this situation. Super outcast. Yeah. And it was just getting more flagrant. So Anne just could not believe what was going on. At this point, some neighbors said that they had seen Pat kissing the doctor in her driveway during the day. Now, this woman lives two doors down from her sister-in-law's. This is just getting to bizarre levels of not caring. And Marty still hasn't seen any. Well, I guess he saw the foot rubbing. He saw the, like, leg massage situation. And the in-laws were upset because there was one day that Joe had stopped by. And it was, like, late at night. And I don't know where Marty was, but she thought she would just find them in the home. So she just walked right in. And she was like, hi, guys, I'm coming in. I wanted to bring you something. And she went down to the rec room and Dr. Stephen Shearer was there with her daughter-in-law and her husband was like nowhere. Her son was nowhere to be seen. And Pat was like, you can't just walk into my house, which I understand. Like, of course, it's terrible if your mother-in-law decides to just barge right into your house at any time. But this was a reaction to her getting caught. Yes. With this guy. So obviously his parents know something is going on. Oh, my God. That's horrifying. Could you imagine? Oh, it's just the way it feels. Mm-hmm. Also, Anne had confronted Joanne, Marty's sister. She said, have you heard when they ran into each other? My husband is divorcing me and he's doing it because he's in love with your sister-in-law. They're having an affair. And she straight up told Marty's sister. So Marty's sister, of course, I believe tried to talk to Marty and she definitely talked to her parents. So now the whole family who's very close is concerned about the situation. By April of 1976, by everyone's estimation, Marty was getting very broody, very quiet. He's very withdrawn. Pat was saying that she was getting completely iced out of his life. He was the opposite of Anne, who she wasn't getting communicative and confrontational. He was just withdrawing from her and family life. And so she was kind of telling friends, I don't really know what to do right now because I don't know what's wrong and why he won't talk to me, even though it kind of seems is what's wrong and why he won't talk to you, Pat. Yeah, babe. <laughs> yeah. I think we know. Mm-hmm. And also, so all this stuff is going on with the family, and apparently a friend of Larry and Joe stopped by their house and was like, I'm so sorry to hear about your son divorcing Pat. And they were like, wait, um, our son isn't getting a divorce. And so that was when they were finally like, we've heard this from people. Some people think you're getting a divorce. Like, 
have you talked to Pat about this? What's going on in your relationship? Larry was straight up like, I'm the mayor of this town. Like, people are like going around gossiping about you. You need to be like the man of your house and shut it down. Like, shut down her running around town with this guy. It's kind of like sexist when you say it like that, but it's the true of anyone. Like, if it was like your husband running around town with a woman as a partner, you say, hey, I trust you and I love you, but this looks really bad and I want an explanation about what's going on. Yeah, or you need to help me defraud these lies. <laughs> yeah, please. Help me prove <laughs> that this isn't really going on. You're not helping me or yourself in this situation. This was not a well-kept secret. So when his parents confronted him, Marty did say, yes, there's absolutely problems in my marriage, but I am working on it. I'm aware of everything that's going on and I'm working on it with Pat and I don't want you guys to get further involved in this. Just know that I'm handling it. By May of 1976, it seemed like Marty was maybe ready to throw in the towel. A week after his 30th birthday, he changed the beneficiaries of his $50,000 life insurance policy. It was supposed to go to Pat before, but now it was going to go into a trust for his children that they could access when they were 21. Pat was going to be cut out of everything. And so it seemed like he was getting ready potentially to file for divorce. But he didn't want to. He still loved his wife. And he had talked to one of his friends about how there had been an affair going on. He was aware of it and that he was ready to divorce Pat if necessary. But ideally, they would have worked it out. And so finally, he had decided to confront Pat and give her an ultimatum. She was going to end the affair. Okay. And her association. Or they were going to get a divorce. And then she could do whatever she wanted. But they weren't going to stay in the marriage the way the marriage was going anymore because it was untenable for both of them. So he did this. This was right around his birthday. I mean, he's 30. He's probably thinking, like, do I want my next 30 years of my life to be like this? No. So he did confront her, and it actually did go his way. Pat chose Marty. Okay. Pat allegedly told Stephen that their affair was over in late May of 1976. She had already pretty much stretched thin her devotion to her Catholicism by cheating. I'd say. Yes. And when she actually thought about breaking up her family and, you know, it's very frowned on, especially in 1976, to get divorced in the Catholic Church. She was like, we'd have to tell everybody in the community, her family would know. There was whisperings, there was things behind closed doors, but it would be out there in the open and she could not walk it back. So she was like, I think I've gone too far. Let's walk it back. Let's work on our marriage. I have to make the right decision here. And I wonder if there was some part of her that was like, maybe this will be a wake up call. Maybe he'll start paying attention to me. I don't know. I couldn't imagine during that time being raised that strictly Catholic and having being able to do any of that as flagrant as she did. Yes. It seems like... For some people, and it, this might have been true for Pat, it almost wasn't what actually was happening. It wasn't like she felt like she was judged on what no one saw. <laughs> it was like she was judged on what people could see. And that meant that almost like she wasn't guilty until people knew that it was true or something. Like it mattered more what people's perception was than what she was actually doing. But yeah, so I don't know. I don't know why this was the stopping point. This was the point where... She was like, no, I don't want to lose you. I don't want to get divorced. It's good. Yeah. This was the point where, though, that she decided. Two weeks before June 2nd, which was the day one of Pat Dillon's lovers would die, Stephen went to a Catholic friend of his and asked if he could take Pat 
out of state after the divorce. Like, hey, so she says she can't be a Catholic anymore if she gets divorced. But what if I take her to a different state? Could she be a Catholic there? And the friend was like, uh, no, the record goes with you. It's in her soul. She said, you know, she can't go to confession. She can't receive the sacraments if she's not a Catholic anymore. And that doesn't matter. That's like wherever she goes, it's inside of her. So around that same time, Patty did seem like she was recommitting herself to Marty in the marriage because she threw him a belated 30th surprise party. I can't believe they're only 30. I know. Isn't that crazy? So the the shares are 36 and they're 30. Wow. I think she's like 29 because she's a year younger than Marty. So Marty was very shocked. He had actually been upstairs. Like he had had a friend who was supposed to distract him basically and bring him to the house. And he had been talking about how agonizing this whole thing had been for him about the affair and that it looked like they're going to work on the marriage and that the affair was over, but it was still heartbreaking for him. And they were still teetering on the edge of maybe getting divorced if things didn't work out. And then all of a sudden, boom, she's like, happy birthday, baby. (laughs) Surprise. And he was surprised because he was surprised that she was putting in this effort for him. And during the time of this party, friends did see that it looked like he had hope again and that Patty was trying again. But there was somebody else at the party not having a very good time. No, he was not there. He was there. What? I don't know why they were allowing this man (laughs) around their life. That just seems crazy to me. And so it was only weeks after the affair ended that Marty and Steven went into the woods of gun smoke to shoot guns. Now, somebody is about to die here, folks. And I would like to step in mid-episode to say that if you have been cheated on and the other man still desires your wife, or if you have been cuckolding your alleged best friend and now he definitely knows about it and is trying to get his marriage back on, in either case... Do not go out alone into the woods with loaded guns with this man who is your romantic rival and has reasons to kill you. Yeah, no, it's wild. It is wild that either of these guys thought that this was a good idea from both perspectives. I know, I know, I know, but like, I know. Yeah, no, I know. I keep going back and forth between each guy and I'm like, each of them have reason to be scared and to kill each other. Yes, yes, they do. Because Marty's in this fragile state. He's been cuckolded by this guy he trusted. And maybe he won, but maybe he didn't win. And maybe if he eliminates him, then the threat's eliminated forever and he can actually move on. Because Pat didn't have an affair with anyone else. This wasn't like she was cheating willy-nilly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like with this one guy. And also, like, I keep going back to the fact that the doctor, like, left pills in the home For his wife to hopefully die. He's already crossing that line with the person that he committed to. What's to say that he's not going to just shoot this guy to get him out of the way? And he had asked his Catholic friend about Catholicism, and they're basically like, she can't get divorced. So, yeah, red flags all around. And we don't, I mean, it's really could go either way. How's Pat? Like, I would be shitting my pants. Later, we're going to hear from Marty's secretary, who is awesome. She's really cool. And she says that it was very weird because Pat did call Marty at the office, and she never called while Marty was working, but Marty had already left. And she said that she had kind of sounded tense or apprehensive. So maybe he had called and left her a message that he was going to go alone with Stephen, which I would be 
incredibly apprehensive about, again, in either direction, that something was going to happen to one of these men that I had loved. On Wednesday, June 2nd, 1976, three of the Wednesday afternoon club men canceled on Marty, and he was left with just Steven. Marty had just left a meeting with his friend Kendall, the one he owned the race car with. And Kendall wasn't part of this club. I don't think he lived quite right in town, and he didn't usually shoot guns with Marty and the guys. But at that time, Marty did ask him to go and said, hey, it's just like me and Steven, so that's kind of weird. Do you want to come? And Kendall was like, I have other plans, but why are you doing this? Like, what is the point? Just cancel the whole thing. And he didn't really say why he wanted to still go or what was going on. And at that point, Kendall was like, well, I've tried to talk to him about this before. I'll just leave well enough alone by not pushing the issue. But well enough was not well at all. No. Clearly. No. So the two men who loved Patty Dillon drove out to Gunsmoke about 10 miles outside of town in Marty's prized BMW. Marty honked the horn as they went by the home of a retired mechanical engineer named Andrew Russin, who kept an eye on the hunting camp for the Dillons when they weren't around. So it's the closest house to the hunting camp. And so he usually let him know when they're going by, like they would honk or something, so that when he heard gunshots, he wasn't freaked out, of course. Yeah, that's very kind. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the least they could do. <laughs> There was a trailer on the property that was used mostly as a place to rest and store food and beer. So the two men allegedly talked about an upcoming murder trial that Marty was going to be acting as a public defender in. This was one of his first murder trials. And there was something about a hand injury in there. So he was asking Stephen questions about the medical side of what he was about to argue. Okay. Doesn't sound like he's going to kill Stephen. No. And they had some other small talk. So they had like had a beer already. Then they took a couple beers in their pockets and they went out to the area near this tree stump off the side of a field where they would usually shoot clay pigeons. Then something went horribly wrong as the sun began to sink into the woods and the endless mountains beyond, which was literally the endless mountains, that's what they're called, of Pennsylvania. One fatal shot rang out that was different from all of the others because it was fatal, of course. Soon, Andrew Russin found a tall, bespectacled man on his doorstep. It was Dr. Stephen Shear. There was an accident and Marty's dead, he said. I had a feeling. Ugh. I mean, based on personality type, huh? I've buried the lead on one little thing, too, which I'll get to about Dr. Stephen Shear that would have shed some more light on this possibility. <sighs> he said he was shot. So... This guy, Andrew Russin, didn't really know Stephen that well because he wasn't a part of this shooting club. So he had kind of seen him from a distance with Marty in the past. So when he shows up on his doorway, he has blood on his mouth and his hands. Okay. And he said that he was very matter of fact. So Andrew was like, well, do you want to wash up while I call an ambulance? Because he's got blood all over his mouth. And he said, no, he refused. And he's like, is it because you gave him CPR? And he said, yes. But he was refusing because clearly he wanted, obviously, yeah, police and the emergency medical staff to see that he had tried to resuscitate him. So if there's blood on his mouth. It was because he gave him mouth to mouth. I know, but like that means that the gunshot was probably not. Well, it was to his chest. Ugh. It was basically right through his heart. 
So while they're waiting for the ambulance, they left, I think it was Andrew Russin's wife to give them the ambulance instructions on how to find exactly where they were at Gunsmoke. Okay. And they went back to wait for the ambulance and Andrew Russin brought a blanket to cover Marty up. And so at that point, Stephen told Russin that he fell on his gun, that that's what happened. And so they get back over there and Andrew Russin sees that there's some clay pigeons near Marty. It looks like his like ear protectors were thrown off and he's got a hole in his chest, like a big hole in his chest. And so he covers him up and he's looking at the scene, which is near this like stump that has blood on it. And while Steven's explaining what happens, he gets up and he grabs the gun. He's like, he used my shotgun. What? Because it was loaded. So he's saying that it wasn't even his gun that he accidentally shot himself with. It was Steven's gun. And before Andrew Russin can stop him, he starts smashing the gun against the tree saying, this goddamn gun will never kill again. Smashing the gun. Uh, yeah, destroying evidence. Exactly. And Russin was worried now that the gun was going to go off uh, again. So he's like, course. he's uh. like, stop it. No, don't do that. He wasn't even thinking about destroying evidence. He was thinking like, you're going to hit it against the tree. It's going to go off and it's going to kill somebody else. I can't imagine being near a loaded gun, period. Not to mention having a dead body there and then watching a guy slam a loaded gun against a tree. Yeah. And this guy was very well trained because everybody in rural areas, like I went through some gun safety. Anyone who routinely uses guns or people like me who have like literally used them like five times in their life. <laughs> if you grow up in that area, hopefully you have some gun training. So he knew gun safety. That's why he was freaked out even more. Like you're freaked out listening it and you haven't even been through a gun safety course. You know that this is all wrong. And he's like, this is like somebody is dead and now you're acting like this? Are you insane? So scary. So yeah, so he's freaking out just because this is like such a crazy situation. And he doesn't know why anyone who knows how to handle firearms would be like smashing a loaded gun against a tree at that point. And so the EMTs arrived first and then the coroner. And this guy was named John Connerton. And he was basically a politically appointed coroner. Okay. And so... It doesn't seem like he had any real forensic training. Who appointed him? It might be like a voted situation. I'm not sure. Somebody in the town. Yeah, I don't know. But anyways, he had struck up a conversation with Stephen. When he had arrived on the scene, Stephen was crying, my best friend. I can't believe he's dead. He was my best friend. I was sleeping with his wife. <laughs> yeah, he did not tell the coroner that. He told the coroner that... After shooting several rounds, he and Marty had started to walk back to the trailer because they were out of cigarettes. Marty had unloaded his gun, whatever the right terminology for that is, but it was Stephen's turn next. So his gun was still fully loaded, but they had like left them basically against the stump, it sounds like, while they went down to the trailer to get more cigarettes and beer. Okay. And as they were walking down the path to the trailer, all of a sudden, Marty stopped and Steven said he did see a porcupine run by. And this was, I guess there was a porcupine on the property that was like chewing through electrical wires. So it was acting as a pest, basically. And so he's like, oh, shit, I have to get that porcupine. It's been like wrecking our property. I'm going to go kill it. And so Steven said, I assume that he ran back to get my gun because my gun was the one that was loaded and his wasn't. And he said that 
He said, keep an eye on that porcupine and tell me where it is. I'm going to go grab your gun. And so then he ran back up the path back to where they were shooting and he could not see what was going on. He heard the gun cock and then he heard the blast. And then he was like, you didn't shoot it for shit. Like your aim's terrible or something. And he said that there was no response. And he was like, shit. And then he ran up and where they had been shooting, which had been out of his sight line. And he found Marty on the ground. He was face down. And when he turned him over, he saw that he had a giant gunshot wound to his chest. So he said at that point he tried to do CPR and he even put his hands like in his chest to try to staunch the bleeding. But it was to no avail. I mean, he had been shot with a shotgun blast through the heart. Don't settle when it comes to your pup's health. Make the switch to fresh food made with real ingredients and backed by science. That's Nom Nom. Jesse, I saw the recent photos of Artie seeing the kids off to their first day of school, and she is such a big baby. <laughs> she really is my gigantic third baby. Dogs are truly a part of the family, and that's why we're so excited to tell you about today's sponsor, Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs so you can bring out their best. Nom Nom's made with real, whole foods you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real, good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinarian nutritionists, made fresh and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. Nom Nom's ingredients are cooked individually and then mixed because science tells us that every protein, carb, and veggie has different cook times and methods. This gives your dog efficient energy and packs in the vitamins and minerals they need, truly getting the most out of every single bite. Artie is such a happier pup when she's eating right, and anything that takes a little less time out of my day when I'm dealing with back-to-school stuff and high emotions and lots of meal prep is going to make me so happy. We're so glad that Nom Nom's diet is so customizable to her specific needs and so easy for us. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. We just need them to start making some cat food for Quincy Seriously. <laughs> Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash lovemurder. Spelled try N-O-M dot com slash lovemurder for 50% off. Try nom.com slash lovemurder. So he's blaming the porcupine. <laughs> you know, sometimes I anticipate the things that you say, and sometimes I'm still surprised, but yes, he's blaming the porcupine. I mean, this is just so insane, though, right? Like, it's an insane story, especially given that there's so much gossip in this town about this affair. Yes. Yeah, it's just crazy. But he's talking to the coroner and the coroner doesn't know the gossip. He's like not that in on the, the town tea, apparently. And he's like, as a doctor, blah, blah, blah. And the coroner's a doctor too. And I feel like he just trusted him for some reason. So the coroner could not think of any reason why a respectable doctor would have shot his friend when it was the two of them out alone and there's no other suspects. So he just believes him. He's like, okay, I mean, oh, he comes over, he looks over, he goes, oh, yep, looks like uh, his shoelace was untied. So 
that makes sense. His shoelaces untied. He must have been running after the porcupine. He tripped on the shoelace. The gun goes off, falls, goes off into his chest. And the gunshot wound reflected being that close to himself? No, of course not. (laughs) Of Of course it didn't. Of course it didn't. But again, I think this guy's a small town coroner who is not trained. This is also 1976 to think this way. He is not somebody that sees a lot of criminal activity, homicidal activity. So he just was going off of the information and trusting the doctor story, essentially. And so he's like, okay, shoelace down. He must have fallen. He shot himself. Case closed. Accident. But not everyone was so convinced. There was a state trooper who was on the scene taking photos, thank goodness. And he was like almost getting into an argument with the coroner because the state troopers like who saw a lot more murders was like, wait, okay, so you're saying this, he tripped because his shoelace is untied, but he's like, but look at his boot. His boot is tightly laced. He's like, when you're running and your shoe or boot is untied, the boot becomes unlaced. It gets looser and looser and looser. This was tightly laced together and just untied. Okay. So like you can't run that way. Do you see what I mean? It, ma- it doesn't make any sense. Like imagine, Andy, you're wearing a boot and it's tied. If it's untied from the get-go, then as you run, it's going to spread out. Yep. So do they think that someone untied his boot after the fact? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So that's what the, the state trooper was getting at. He's like, Somebody clearly untied it while he was already down because this doesn't make any sense for a running position. He also noticed that essentially Marty's like pant legs were pulled up. Like if somebody is squatting or sitting, you know how the hem of their pants rise? Yep. And so he's like that also the positioning of where his pants were based on like their length and where they should have been. If he was running, they should have been completely down because he's standing up. And instead, they were up revealing his ankles as if he had been squatting. Yeah, these are all like minute details that only someone who has been around a lot of crime scenes would point out. Yes, and he was a crime scene photographer, so he knew how to notice these small details. because He has almost like a, an artist's eye for crime. Yeah. So yeah, he thought that was strange. The other thing was that there was no blood on the gun. He knew from other crime scenes and seriously, like, unfortunately, suicides and stuff, that when there is close contact, when it's a contact wound, the blood spatter essentially blows back out so that it's inside the barrel as well as on the outside of the gun as well, if you think about how that would happen. And there's no blood anywhere. So that would be more indicative of somebody that was shot from a few feet away. How did blood not blow back on the gun if it was that close? And the photographer noticed that? The photographer noticed that as well. So he's a detective. Uh, (laughs) Yes. So he's like, something is very wrong. He also could not understand why the doctor had given him CPR because he said, I'm not a doctor, but I'm looking at this guy and he has like a humongous hole through his heart. Clearly, this man was dead. You don't need to be a doctor to say it. Like he felt like maybe he was doing the CPR to make it look like he was trying, obviously. And not washing it off too. And not washing it off, which was strange. And the other thing was about that gunshot wound is that contact wounds are smaller, especially with shotguns. They have pellets that kind of like come out from the shot. And so the further away they are, the bigger the hole is going to be. And it seemed too large for a contact wound. 
So he's noticing all this, but the coroner's like, uh, I talked to the guy. It's an accident. And he's like, uh, I don't think it is. <laughs> and there was someone else who also noticed that something wasn't quite right. A volunteer first aid technician named Carla Gazda had heard the radio call and she, her husband was also an EMT, I believe. And so she knew that he was going and she was going to the call as well to see if they needed extra help. But their five-year-old daughter, Cindy, was in the car. So when she showed up on the scene in the car with their five-year-old daughter, he was like, no, 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 get back, get back. This is like a crime scene. There's a man who's deceased here. Can you just sit in the car and wait? So she was like, sure, whatever. Like, let me know if you need anything. So she went back and sat in her car with her five-year-old. And apparently Stephen did not notice that she had gotten in the car or that she was there because she said she started watching him and he didn't seem to realize that somebody was looking at him. So this is how she described it to author Maria Eftimiades. Over and over, Carol Gazda watched behavior she could hardly believe. So she didn't know his name was Steven at this point. She just saw the man. Okay. A man sitting quietly, looking as if nothing was wrong, placid and calm. Then someone would appear from inside the trailer or up the path. A trooper, the coroner, an EMT, and the man in front of her, as if on cue, would then begin to suddenly cry. My best friend, he'd sob. He was my best friend. For a little more than an hour, Carol watched Steven turn off and on half a dozen times, calm in his solitude, breaking down the moment anyone approached. I can't believe it, he'd sob. I can't believe my best friend is dead. It was the strangest sight Carol had ever observed. She felt as if she were invisible, the only witness to this inexplicable scene. For some reason, Stephen did not notice her sitting quietly in her car. She had no idea what she was seeing. She only knew that something was very, very wrong. Who is this guy, she thought. Whoa. It's crazy to have like that outsider perspective not knowing who he was and watching. She you know, didn't it even know how he was involved with what was going on at that point. She was just like, she just knew it was fucking weird. She just knew it was fucking weird. Even if this was a guy who was, hadn't had anything to do with it, who just showed up on the scene for his best friend and was turning it on and off, she would thought that was weird. So meanwhile, the Dillons were notified of Marty's death, as was Pat. Now, Joe Dillon, his mother, found out first. This obviously happened on their property. And then she's like, I gotta go tell Pat. And she told Pat, and it does not seem that Pat had any forewarning or knowledge that this was going to happen. Pat immediately said, don't worry, Joe, I'll take care of him. I'll take care of him for the rest of his life. Whatever he needs, I'm here for him. When she was told that there had been a shooting accident, it seems like Pat initially believed that he might be impaired or he might have some permanent issues, but he was not dead based on what she said. And that's when Joe was like, no, honey, he's dead. He's dead. So she seemed very genuinely surprised and remorseful. So I definitely do not think that she was in cahoots. Yeah. Yes. I don't think she was in cahoots with Stephen because she seemed genuine. And even, even Marty's parents thought so. As for Stephen, though, there were quite a few people that immediately thought he killed Marty. Marty's secretary, Bonnie Mead, his friend Kendall, the one he had tried to talk into coming with them, which Kendall was like kicked himself for the rest of his life for not going and not canceling his plans, but he had no idea. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And Larry Dillon, of course, also was having a very hard time reconciling this because he knew he had taught Marty everything about gun safety since he was a child and that there was no way he'd be 
dumb enough to do something like be running with a gun and like the way he held it. It's just with his shoe untied and his. Yes. It didn't make any sense to Larry. And so the only answer was that obviously Stephen, who he knew from these rumors, was potentially having an affair with his daughter-in-law. So it was, I think, very sickening for the Dillons that their son is gone and that this person did it potentially. And the coroner immediately said, nope, it's an accident. I trust him. What about Anne? Oh, this is a whole thing. Anne was another person that believed that he did it right away. But the whole thing about Anne is kind of crazy. Ironically, the news that Marty Dillon had died well alone in the woods with her soon-to-be ex actually saved Anne's life. Anne had sunk into a depression after Stephen moved out, which is all like he was so freaking shitty during this divorce. He told her that by the time he was done with her, that she was going to be miserable, alone, have nothing, and have to work at a McDonald's to make ends meet. Wow, that's disgusting. That's how cruel he was. And she had realized when they started the divorce proceedings that over the last two years, he had had her sign a bunch of forms, which she thought were for purchasing stocks and moving some of their assets into different securities. And instead, she had not read the fine print. And it was basically her transferring all of their joint assets over to him legally. So she had nothing. He had left her with the farm, but she was struggling to make ends meet. He had just moved. They had an investment property that was like a little house in town that usually they rented out and he had just moved into it. And he was like, you get nothing. You can keep the farm. Good luck paying for it. And they had something like 35 head of cattle and she's got these dogs and she's got chickens and she's got a full-time job and she's trying to handle this all on her own, not knowing like she's going to have to feed all of those cattle. Sorry, does 35 head of cattle mean 35 cows? That's 35 cows. Yeah, cows. Yeah. (laughs) That's a lot of cows. That's a lot of cows. So yeah, so she had basically fallen into depression. She was also just really sad about her divorce. She was very lonely. She's living out in the middle of nowhere by herself. She doesn't know anyone here, really. It's not like Marty and Pat who had grown up here. Yeah. So she decided like he was going to get his way. She was going to kill herself. So she decided on June 2nd, because she didn't have to be at work for three days at that point, that she was going to take an overdose and she was going to go to sleep. And she left a note for one of her friends about what she wanted to do with the animals. And somehow I think there was some notification system that somebody was going to be able to find her to take care of the animals or something. And so about, I think, Two hours after Marty Dillon had been shot, she had taken a handful of pills and she had laid down. And when it went around town that Marty Dillon had been shot and that he had been with her soon-to-be ex, one of her friends kept trying to call her to tell her the news because they wanted to be the first ones to tell her. It was a woman named Donna Sands. So she kept trying to call her and she's not answering. And she's calling and calling and calling and she's not answering because she's passed out at this point. So God bless Donna. She's like a hero of the story. She went to her goddamn house. She found an open window. She crawled through the window and found her friend passed out on the couch, the note. And she's like, oh no, not today, not on my watch. And she called 911, got an ambulance there. 
And she was taken to the hospital. Her stomach was pumped. She was treated for an overdose. And Anne lived. Good. And that's a good friend. That's a good friend. And that also is just good for the story. (laughs) Yes, it's good for the prosecution. (laughs) So Anne survives. And when she was stable enough, Donna was there for her. And Donna finally told her what happened. And the first thing she said was, he killed him, didn't he? (sighs) My God. That was the first thing she said. And Anne had a very good reason to suspect this. This is what I kind of held back from earlier. Trigger warning for animal abuse slash animal death. No. Yes. In fact, Stephen had already ended the life of a beloved pet after the sweet dog named Shadow stopped responding to him in obedience training. It was a girl dog named Shadow, and it had been basically his dog to train. And when Shadow stopped recalling, which is essentially like when you call them to come to you, and Shadow kind of started ignoring him because Shadow had good taste in people, apparently. He was getting frustrated and angry with the dog, and he wanted to get rid of it. So Anne said, okay, let me work something out. Shadow was not spayed, so Shadow was purebred. And so she talked to another breeder who potentially wanted to keep Shadow just for breeding, not for any sort of showing or obedience work. And... Anne was working out a deal with this breeder and it looked like it was going to happen and she came home and Shadow's kennel was empty and she said that he was watching TV and she was like, hey, where's Shadow? And he's like, oh, I shot her. She said, completely deadpan. Yeah, I shot her. She's dead. And she said she was just totally chilled to the bone and struck by how emotionless he was and how if he doesn't have any use for something that he'll just get rid of it if it no longer serves him. Wow. And now she knew when she found out about Marty that once again, he had ended the life of a being that was not serving him. And in Marty's case, not only was he not serving him, but he was actually getting in the way of his life with Pat. However, the coroner ruled that it was an accident and the poor Dylans had to hold a funeral for Marty And Stephen was one of the pallbearers. That's good for him. He, like, thinks that he's, like, one-upping everyone. He's like, he was my best friend. He keeps telling that. It's a horrible, horrible thing. I can't believe I was there during this horrible accident. I had to witness it. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. And what is Pat's position? Pat believed completely that it was an accident. She thought she knew him. She thought she knew Stephen. She knew he was a healer. She did not think it was possible that he would want to take somebody's life. There was one detective, though, who definitely thought Stephen did it and was trying to ride his ass and trying to get him to confess when, of course, he lawyered up and it became much more difficult, especially as the coroner said, this isn't even a homicide. And this guy's name was Jock Collier, Jack Collier. He was such a cool dude. But because the coroner had ruled it an accident and because the DA had zero interest in pursuing it, he was just like, I need to make sure everything's recorded. I want his autopsy recorded. I want photographs of everything. He's like making sure that the Dillon family doesn't like cremate his body. Like everything has to be as intact as possible because maybe someday in the future they can reopen this. Because he knew deep in his gut that absolutely 100% this man had been murdered and it had to have been Stephen. Now, when Jock starts pushing 
for an investigation for the coroner to maybe change his ruling when he's notifying Stephen's attorney that he wants to have him bring in Stephen for more questioning. This is when Pat gets word that they are starting to suspect Stephen. And she actually called her mother-in-law, who's like Marty's poor grieving mother, and basically says, lay off Stephen. He's hurting too. He's grieving and you're making this terrible for him. And accused her father-in-law, Larry, of using his political clout in the town to pressure the DA into pressing charges. Honey. Yeah, Joe's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And Pat was very wrong because the DA had zero interest in pursuing this. And this was not something Larry was pushing at all. The DA independently, and I think this was, might have been a failure on the DA's part, for sure. He could not actually mentally wrap his head around how stupid this would have been for the doctor to do it willingly, being the only person that's there for him and with the rumors of the sexual affair. He's like a well-educated, well-respected doctor, which has never had any other example of aggression. I mean, he didn't know about the dead dog, clearly. Would not do this. This just doesn't make any sense. Why would he put himself in a position to be prosecuted for such an obvious motivation? He's like, look, there's a motivation here, but that doesn't mean that it happened. And he didn't think that he could prove it. And he also thought, I think that rationally he thought he was innocent because it was so insane to think that this guy could think he could get away with it. Yeah. So the DA had zero interest in pursuing it. But this was the beginning of a rift between Larry and Joe Dillon and Pat that would never be healed. And in the quest to get to the bottom of what happened to their son, it would eventually cost the Dillons a relationship with their grandchildren. No. It's very, very, very sad. Within six weeks of Marty's death, Pat moved with Suzanne and Michael to an apartment in a suburb of Philly. So six weeks, they're out of town. This was like four hours away from Montrose. She went to cash in on the life insurance policy, and that was when she found out that she was not the beneficiary. And the money was placed in a trust for the children. Was she upset about that? I don't think she was upset. She was kind of just more like, well, what do I do now? So she's a single mom now. She doesn't have any operating cash because this is put in a trust. Well, that's when grandparents would be very helpful. Yes. And she was kind of down and out. She's trying to figure out what to do. She had moved because there was a lot of gossip and rumors around the town and she felt like she could no longer be there because obviously people were looking at her kind of sideways like did you cause this did this is this a direct result of your affair and she was already in a weakened state so she could not handle that so that's why she had moved but she was in a bad space and unfortunately she felt like there was only one person that could understand these allegations and understand her and could be in a position as a doctor to help her but didn't she move 4 hours away from him too yeah, but he was getting ready to move at that point, too. Where? But he's moving to New Mexico. So pff, he's moving far away. But he's still coming to see her because he doesn't have kids or a wife or anything. So when he's not working, he can go visit her. So people were already getting reports back. By the time Thanksgiving happened, Marty's parents were already getting reports that they had seen the two together in Philadelphia. So people are finding out that they're still seeing each other in some capacity. So basically what happened was that Stephen ended his contract at the hospital early. He said it was just small town people 
making small town talk and he just wasn't going to stand for it anymore. And he ended up getting licensed in New Mexico and moving there. And uh, eventually, just about two years after Marty's death, he remarried. Do you want to guess who his new wife was? A nurse. A nurse named Patty. No. 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 Patty Dillon married Stephen Shear. No. And became. No. Became a doctor's wife, finally. No. Two years after the murder. Oh, that does not look good. That does not look good. June of 1978, they were married. And she didn't tell Marty's parents. She wrote them a letter when she was already living in New Mexico with the grandchildren, being like, hey, you might have heard about this, and I want to tell you myself. And as long as you're cordial, the kids can still have a relationship with you. But she and Stephen felt like Larry was the one gunning for him. So she allowed the kids to call and write their grandmother, Joe, but Larry wasn't welcome in their home, and they wouldn't go visit the Dillons because she didn't want to see Larry. And so I guess a couple years after they were married, Joe and Joanne, Marty's sister, went to go visit them in New Mexico because they wanted to see the grandkids. And they said that Stephen was so rude, off-putting, and staring daggers at them the whole time that they never felt comfortable to go back. Of course. Oh, my gosh. I can't imagine that your son's killer, the person you think is the one who murdered your son, marries your daughter-in-law, is now raising your son's kids. They ended up also adopting another child, another son. And by all accounts, Stephen was an excellent father, according to the now-grown children. Until they don't listen. Well, no, he was perfect, they said. They grew up to adults and they said he was an ideal father. He was patient. He was loving. He was kind. He was great to them. They have a tremendous amount of loyalty to Stephen. There was never a real answer to how the investigation got so fumbled other than the DA just could not fathom, like I said, how this could have actually went down that way. Also, it's said that the Dillons were probably a little sensitive to the fact that the children were so young and grieving and didn't want to like kick up a whole thing, especially when their mother had just married the guy that they want to put away. Yeah. So there was that. There was also, I guess that a lot of the people who worked at the hospital, because Stephen was higher up there, he was a doctor. Some of the nurses and receptionists were afraid to say anything. They were worried about their jobs. Stephen had already said that he was going to sue for defamation. So even the Dillons were a little scared to start putting out there legally, like what had happened and what happened with the affair. So people were afraid in this town to say anything. So there's a million reasons, but it basically just went away, like that nobody was investigating this at all anymore. The only person who was still trying other than obviously the inner circle of like Larry, Joe, their daughter and Bonnie. Marty's secretary, was Detective Jack Collier. And he was like on him. When before Stephen left town, he used to just show up once a month at his clinic and demand that the doctor do his blood pressure and just stare at him the whole time. Oh my God, obsessed. (laughs) Yeah. And that every single year after Stephen moved to New Mexico, he sent him a Christmas card that just said, thinking of you, Jack Collier. Oh my God, this guy is a genius. He is. His story was really cool, too. I didn't have time to include it. But basically, 
he had never had any like formal criminal justice education. He had been in World War II. And then he had started on like a junior level and worked his way up. And he was just incredible. He had passed the FBI course to be admitted to Quantico. But at the time, he was raising his stepson. His wife had a little boy when they met. And they, I think they had another son together at that point. And they didn't have the money collectively for him to go away and do the FBI training. So he never got to do that. But he was that brilliant, like untrained. He could have just, his brain just clicked that way. Well, unfortunately, Jock would never get to see the fruition of his detective labors. In 1986, his son found him collapsed in front of a medical dictionary open to a section on blood disorders. They rushed him to the hospital, and unfortunately, he passed away. But his autopsy would later show that Jock died of that exact blood disorder. So he was a detective till the end. He had figured out what was going to kill him right before it actually killed him. Oh, my God. Wasn't that crazy? Yes. So this was obviously a huge blow to Larry and Joe Dillon when Jock passed away. Because he had been basically their champion throughout this process. But soon Bonnie Mead stepped up. So she had been Marty's secretary. And she was working for a different attorney. And this different attorney, so this is many years later, had to go through something forensically for a case. And they hired this state trooper who had um, specialized experience in the field. And so while she was working with this guy whose name was Stu Bennett, she was like, huh, I wonder if Stu would consider looking into Marty's case, looking at the evidence, seeing if there's something here, some reason to reopen the case. I mean, really open the case because it sounds like it was never open to begin with. And this was pretty much the prayer being answered of the Dillons, that somebody would take an interest in this and, and make some headway in it finally. Bonnie basically gave all of the evidence to Stu. And when Stu reviewed this, he said, yes, 100%, this was a homicide. Wow. Stu Bennett is on the episode of Forensic Files and he talks about Basically, all the tests he did, which were really, like, crazy. There was one test he did because he wanted to test basically what the contact wound would look like and how far away the barrel of the shotgun had to be to create a similar wound to Marty's. So he did this by stretching pigskin over a mannequin and shooting it. But he talks about how he does this in his process, and he determined that literally from the barrel, like from the very end of the shotgun, he would have had to been at least three to five feet from that. And then the shotgun itself is at least 36 to 40 inches. So he says, now you're looking at five to six feet away from him. So this is not even something that he could have dropped and it could have hit him. There's no way. It literally, he'd have to be somewhere and pulling a string or something in order to get this yeah, or like chuck it exactly this just doesn't make any sense with the way steven described this potentially going down or he said he didn't quite see it so it's possible something else had happened but there was no way of making any sense of this having done it at all by himself he also noticed that there wasn't any blood on the barrel of the gun There was no gunpowder on Marty's shirt. He was able to get the evidence to test that. And if it was a contact wound, of course there would have been gunpowder residue on the shirt. 
1990, Stu Bennett pulled together a report on all of his findings and sent his suspicions to the Pennsylvania State Police. This time, the Dillons now had a surprising supporter. They had invited the original coroner over, John Connerton, to review the case. And they showed him all the evidence that Stu Bennett had provided, and he changed his mind. He said he was wrong. He was no longer the coroner at that point, but he recommended to the current county coroner that they reopen the case to look at it and maybe reclassify it at that point. And it also appeared that the doctor who had done the autopsy, so the coroner did not actually do the autopsy. There was another doctor who did, but he said also that he himself was a family doctor and he was not a forensically trained medical examiner so that he realized that there had been kind of failings along the way as far as expertise involved. And now the people who were originally involved in the case are all kind of saying, we screwed this one up. This was not an accident. However, there was still a missing piece of the puzzle, and this would come in in May of 1991 when the state police sent evidence to the FBI lab in Quantico. According to Secrets from the Grave, they sent the boots that Stephen Chair had been wearing at the time of the murder. And when the reports came back, the news was staggering. The boots contained high-velocity blood spatter, revealing that the wearer had been within a few feet of the victim, not 100 feet or more out of sight, obviously. Did no one look at his shoes? I don't know how minuscule the blood spatter was. Okay. So I don't know. I feel like they probably would have noticed if it had been more obvious, but maybe it was something that wasn't super duper obvious to the naked eye. Yeah. Or they thought it was just blood, like he had blood on his hands and mouth. Exactly. So it could have just dripped down his body. Mm Mm-hmm. The report also stated that the spatter on the tree stump and on the instep of Marty's shoe suggested that he may have been sitting or squatting, we've heard this before, near the log, not running. Ballistics experts had reassembled Cher's broken shotgun and test-fired it, determining the muzzle was up to three feet away when it was fired, almost exactly what Stu Bennett had said. Wow. By now, Suzanne and Michael were grown. And Dr. Stephen and Pat Shear had moved to North Carolina. They had no idea that the ugly truth from nearly two decades before was about to be uncovered. Oh, God. Marty was about to be quietly exhumed, and this dead man would tell tales of betrayal and murder. On April 29th, 1995... Martin Thomas Dillon was exhumed and autopsied by Dr. Isidore Bihilakis. So they can do that without approval of the ex-spouse or anyone. They had to get a warrant to do it, and it was approved. But I don't know why they didn't have to tell Pat, but the parents had to appeal, I believe, to the court to get permission to do this, and they did. Okay. It gets complicated because we're going to talk about these findings and I'll tell you about what happened afterwards. So Dr. Mihalakis also noted that Marty had been in a sitting or squatting position of the murder. He talks about that on Forensic Files. He performed several tests that showed that a shotgun would fall barrel down, not barrel up when dropped. Furthermore, there were no burn marks on Marty's skin or clothing And the wound showed evidence of scalloping. So that's when it's not a clean cut bullet wound. There's kind of like these scalloped edges on it, which is evidence that the pellets were already coming out of the shot 
which is creates that scalloped wound. That doesn't happen if it's a contact wound. Even more so than doing these tests on the gun, Dr. Mihalikas also could detect that the shot had been opposite as was described. So they had been working under the assumption that he had dropped the gun, it had gone off and had shot him from an upward angle when actually he was shot from a downward 45 degree angle. So he had indeed been squatting when Stephen took the shotgun and aimed at his heart. So after the new autopsy report, the county coroner ruled that Marty's death was indeed a homicide. The wheels of justice were finally turning. Wow, 20 years later. Stephen and Pat still retained their old lawyer, and they ended up sending up a press conference. So the day after it was ruled a homicide and no longer an accident, they came from North Carolina to Pennsylvania and had a press conference to get, I guess, in front of this whole thing. They said that they wanted to do it to put the rumors to rest. Stephen stuck to his story about the porcupine, and both he and Pat continued to deny that they had had an affair prior to Marty's death. Their lawyer said that if the state had had any real evidence, they would not have waited 19 years to come after him. And so he was basically like, sure, come arrest him. Try him for this because we'll want our day in court to finally put these rumors to rest. I don't think anyone really wants a day in court. <laughs> no. And on June 20th, 1996, almost exactly 20 years since Marty had been murdered, the authorities said, OK, we'll do just that. And Dr. Stephen Scher was arrested and extradited to Pennsylvania. So the whole thing about this and his burial is kind of screwed up is that he had been buried on a family plot and then they'd exhumed him and then he'd been laid back to rest. And then Stephen's attorney had wanted to exhume him again so their own experts could autopsy the body, which eventually they did. And then Technically, Pat had the right to move him. And so she put him in her family's cemetery and plot away from Why? the Dillons. I don't know. I feel like it was just spiteful. It has to be. Why would you do that? So there's currently a headstone that says Martin Thomas Dillon, but his body is in a different graveyard with Pat. Well, not Pat. She's still alive, I think, or was re when I finished my research. <laughs> two days ago. Well, no, I mean, I a lot of the last stuff I read about this happened in like 2010. So a lot of things could happen in 13 years. I don't know. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with COVID years. Exactly. So I have no idea. I don't know anything past 2010, to be honest. But yeah, I don't know why she did that. I just thought that was really screwed up. Yeah, I don't like that. There is definitely bad blood between them because she also said this to reporters. She told the reporter that she didn't understand Larry and Joe Dillon. I don't wish them any more pain, she said. We've all suffered enough. They lost a child, and there couldn't be anything worse than that. But why would you let hate overtake all of that good? Why would you throw away your son's children, the only living part of your child? How could you do that? If somebody could help me understand it, it would all be easier to take. I don't think they threw it away. I think she took them away. She took them away, but also, how can you not put yourself in a position, if you're a mother, that your child was murdered, and then the murderer is getting to go on and live their life and breathe fresh air and raise your son's, your dead, murdered son's children? How can you not comprehend how that might be a pill to swallow? That's not hate in your heart. That is grief. That is justifiable anger. It's not as if they're not letting her move on with a guy she met after this whole thing happened, a nice stepfather to her children. We're talking about 
the man who murdered their child. I think you're allowed to have a little hate in your heart for that person. I feel like Pat was obviously really not getting it. And unfortunately, neither were the kids. I mean, they were 100% on their stepfather's side. They, at that point, stopped communicating with their grandparents. They believed their stepfather and their mother when they said this was just a campaign of very unhappy people who lost their son and had a bone to pick with Stephen, even though he was completely innocent and had done a great job raising them, according to them. I think this was really hard to swallow, too. Suzanne said in court when they were discussing his bail hearing, he did not get bailed, by the way, that this has ruined them all because of lies and innuendo and that her parents have no money because he hasn't been able to work while he's been in prison. And she said that she and her brother were using their trust from Marty to pay for Stephen's defense. No. Yeah. Which they called him dad. I mean, think about it. It was the only father they'd had in their life since they were three and five. So my heart hurts for them because this is mind spinning to have your family destroyed again, it feels like. And they didn't really remember their father. And then they're using all of their money to defend this person accused of killing their biological father. Who probably would have given anything to be there and raise them. I know. It's tragic all around. And it's really frustrating because I do not actually believe Pat had absolutely anything to do with the murder. But it's like over these 20 years, you never suspected? Like, how are you so ride or die for this guy when he may have killed the father of your children? It's icky. And she was an adult in this. So... I have a lot of sympathy for the children, and I can completely understand why they were loyal to him. Yeah. But I have icky feelings about Pat because I just don't know how you can go through this much time with somebody and not question it. Yeah, totally. The trial got rolling. The prosecution argued that on the day of the murder, Marty had actually talked to Stephen about the end of the affair and respecting Pat's decision to remain in their marriage, that that was basically why he wanted to go forward with them having this Wednesday afternoon club and trying to normalize it because he wanted to make it very clear, going forward, Pat's my wife and you're going to stay away from her and you're going to respect the decision that she made to stay with me. The prosecution contended that Dr. Stephen could not and would not allow that to happen. If Patty could not divorce because of her religion, he'd have to make her a widow. They presented all of the forensic evidence that we have discussed. They also had a long, long line of hospital staff who wanted to testify about all the groping and grabbing and flirting and God knows what that was going on between those two that made it very obvious that they were having an affair. And Stephen's ex-wife also testified about the end of their marriage, his love affair with Pat, the fact that Marty did indeed know about this love affair. And, of course, the dog dying. I don't know if that actually got into the court. I think She might have just told that to the author because I feel like that's something that you can't stay in court because it has nothing to do with the case and it would make the jury really not like you. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be prejudicial. <laughs> so that probably didn't get in. It's so good she told that story. Yes, I'm glad she did too. When the defense presented their case, those who were familiar with the long-running saga were actually shocked by the defense's story. Stephen was changing everything. He was changing his entire story. No more porcupine. 
They're like, the porcupine won't cut it, Stephen. <laughs> Porcupine's not going to do it. Nope, nope, nope. So after two decades of lying, including perjury, lying in official depositions. Yeah, and involving an innocent animal. <laughs> and slandering the good name of the porcupine. <laughs> an innocent, imaginative animal. <laughs> He was now fully admitting that he had had a sexual affair with Pat. He was trying to downplay it, say that it was sexual. It wasn't a love affair. They weren't deeply in love, which Anne testified. When you've been married 20 years later, I yeah. think it's hard to argue. <laughs> yeah, he was trying to downplay the sexual affair. And Anne had also testified that he had already said that he loved her when they came back from that terrible trip to Wyoming. So she was like, that's bullshit. He absolutely loved her. And the defense attorney, it seems like, had realized they had hired a bunch of, of their own experts to look over the evidence. Obviously, they had re-autopsied the body with their paid experts as well. And all of their experts were like, we can't make the story wash. There's no way this porcupine story is going to work. Like, you got to come up with something else because it's just not feasible. It's just It's just not the way it went down. So... Now, Stephen said there was no porcupine. It was just out of fear and desperation that this situation had happened. We'll read from his own words, from his trial testimony. Please, please. I'm very, I'm very interested to hear how it evolved from a porcupine to this. On the stand, Stephen described the drive to Gunsmoke and how they shot the clay pigeons for a while. He said that they discussed Marty's upcoming trial. Then Stephen Chair told the jury a story that no one had heard before. He claimed that Marty Dillon's mood changed abruptly. Without warning, Dillon confronted him about the affair. This is coming from his testimony. He said, Anne came to me and told me that you told her you loved Pat. When did that happen? I walked over to him. I said, it doesn't matter when it happened. Do you believe her? He said, I don't know. She's crazy. I don't know. All the rumor and gossip in town, my father's breathing down my neck about the gossip. I need to know. He looked at the ground like he didn't want to know. He looked up at me and said, I have to know. Are you and Pat having an affair? I had to tell him the truth because he's so good at telling the truth, this guy. Mm -hmm. He was looking me in the eye. I said, yes, we're not having a love affair, a physical affair. He was very anxious, very upset. I don't remember his exact words, how he phrased questions. I don't remember the order. He wanted to know how this started. I told him it just happened. Pat and I worked closely together. It just happened. He put his hands over his ears. He rocked. He asked how long it had been going on. I said, about a year. How often were you screwing my wife? Five or six times, the last time in April. He wanted to know where. A total? Yeah, I don't believe that for a second either. Five Lol. or six times. Lol. <laughs> Are you doing this in my house, in one of my cars, in the hospital, he wanted to know? I said, no, we would go to a hotel. Also lies. Everybody saw you, sir. He said, how could this have happened to me? And I said, Marty, I've seen you and your family. I've watched your reaction to your wife and kids. You show more reactiveness, more responsiveness to your father, to your practice. Show more responsiveness to your damn BMW than you do to your family. He said that to him. Ugh. <sighs> rude. I'm glad that he could slide some victim blaming right into his testimony, too. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Pat was just lonely, he said. Why doesn't she tell me? I said, she probably does. She probably has. You just don't care. I wasn't looking at him. I said, you know, this is as much your fault as it is anybody's. Um, sir. And then he said, I heard a yell. He had the gun. I knew I had to get the gun away from him. I didn't know what he was going to do with it. I grabbed the gun. We struggled. The gun went off and he turned white. 
I turned him over, punched his chest. I took off his glasses and earmuffs. Oh, that was another thing they could tell. Punched the... his chest? I, yeah, I don't know. But um, the earmuffs, there was blood spatter everywhere, like, and except for around his ears. Because he had been wearing the earmuffs still when he had been shot. So that was another piece of forensic evidence. Oh, my God. And so that's, he had to work this into the story. Because he'd clearly taken them off afterwards when he was staging the crime. I started screaming, Marty, don't die. Stop, Marty, don't. He was dead. I panicked. All of a sudden, I got this feeling of panic, of aloneness. I was all alone. I was afraid. I didn't know what to do. I was pacing around, moaning, Marty, why have you done this? I was a mess. My whole insides were in turmoil. I felt afraid. I was horrified. I was thinking, how can I tell anybody this accident happened like this and have anybody believe me? With all the rumors that were going on, with me being a relative newcomer to the area and Marty's father is the mayor, I was the only Jew in town. I felt like I couldn't tell anybody. No. Yep, he's going there. Also, it's like I'm not diminishing anti-Semitism, but in this case, he and Pat for years and years were Catholic church parishioners who had just donated a statue of St. Jude to their current church in North Carolina and had literally their reverend from North Carolina at the trial with them. I guess it would be priest, sorry, if it's Catholic. But yeah, <laughs> I'm like, okay. So, I mean, I get the whole thing. His dad's the mayor. He has deep connections in this town, but come on. Yeah, but maybe that's why you don't screw his wife, his wife in the first place. Exactly. I messed up emotionally. I had to sort things out. How can I tell people what happened? I decided since it was an accident, I was going to make it into another accident. I couldn't face the public telling them the truth. I had to make something up, another accident. I made up a story about him running with the gun and tripping and falling. No shit, Sherlock. That's why you're here. Oh, my God. I was afraid I would be convicted and I'd never be able to practice medicine again. So I made up that story and I took the gun and I wiped off the barrel with a handkerchief and I put it back in my pocket. I put the gun with the muzzle facing his head. I untied his shoelace. Wow. So you are admitting to messing with the crime scene as well. He is, but it still doesn't make sense because... He still would have had to be five to six feet away from him. That's not struggling with the gun. There would still be gunpowder residue on Marty's shirt if they had struggled with the gun. So this still doesn't make sense. And also, we know for a fact that Marty already knew of the affair, had already issued the ultimatum, had already technically won because Pat was staying with him. So all of a sudden, he's confronting him about the affair now and being like, when did it happen? How did it happen? He already would have known this from his wife. So yeah, none of this new story makes sense either. So would the jury believe it though? The whole, I lied for 20 years straight, but now I'm telling the truth. Yeah, now this isn't another lie. This is definitely not another lie. Which this lie also does make me look bad. <laughs> well, that was what they were going for. They were like, you're not gonna like him. They even talked about how he slept with other women other than Pat. They're like, we're not going to give him a medal for his sexual exploits or the fact that he cheated on his wife. But you're going to understand why he lied because he already looks so bad doing the bad things that we're admitting he did. It's like that Instagram that I think I've sent you called like medals for good boys. It's like <laughs> boys like doing just normal what's like baseline acceptable behavior. But it's like all cartoons and it's like like you get a medal for taking out the trash. Yes. Like. <laughs> but it's like no medals because you're still lying. You're definitely still lying. And the jury thought so, too. OK, good. Yep. Dr. Stephen Cher was found guilty of murder in the first degree. So they didn't even believe that it was an accident. They thought the whole thing was a setup. 
The Dillons felt as though a weight had been lifted from their hearts. However, in the pursuit of justice, they had lost something else, their grandchildren. Joe Dillon told a reporter, I'm so relieved, but I have no joy because we've lost our grandchildren. Yeah, it's so sad. It's so sad. So Stephen was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But that was not the end of the story. So there's a lot of back and forth and questions about where this guy was going to end up. His conviction was actually overturned after he'd only spent two years in prison. But then the state Supreme Court reversed that decision and sent the disgraced doctor back to prison in 2002. Then in 2004, a state appeals court found that the original trial judge had improperly dismissed a juror and the state Supreme Court ordered a retrial. What? Yes. So he got a brand new trial, which happened in 2008. And I'm not really sure if this happened before the trial or around the second trial, but I don't think Patricia was at his side for this one because they ended up divorced. And I don't know, I couldn't find any information on what happened to her afterwards or her kids. So I have no idea. I don't know if it was like, oh, she had a revelation finally that, yeah. that this actually happened. Maybe he broke down and told her the truth at some point and she couldn't live with it. And what had happened, she might have just wanted company and it looked like he was going to spend the rest of his life in jail. Who knows? I do not. I cannot speculate on why Pat finally left him, but she did. And his new jurors were not any more sympathetic to him than the last jurors had been. No, they were not. They said, I think the jury foreman on that one on the second trial was like, yeah, it wasn't a hard decision. Back to jail with you, sir. So he was convicted again and he went back to prison. And two years later, he died in prison of natural causes at the age of 70. Wow. Yep. He had lived a lot longer than his dad and a lot longer than he thought he was going to live. But what a waste so much of that was, unfortunately. And also, it's so terrible for the kids because now every memory they have of um, both yeah. of their fathers is tainted forever. No, I feel for them. That is not ideal. No, I can't imagine. They're trying to do the best they can, helping in any way possible. Like, they're probably questioning everything, every step of their childhood. It's good at least they're old enough to maybe work through it properly. Yes, I hope that they have. I, I don't really know. I didn't like super duper dig trying to find information about them, but I do hope that they are happy and well because that was an impossible situation to be put in. I am happy to report that at least one person in this very, very sad story got a happy ending. Who? That was Anne, Stephen's ex. She remarried an owner of... Ford dealerships, multiple Ford dealerships who Amazing. had some coin. He was like a lot older than her, I think. His name was John Vitale. And this relationship was supportive, warm, loving, just everything that Anne deserved and could have dreamed of. Maria Estimades wrote, Anne thanked God many times for her second chance at happiness. With John Vitale, she felt safe to share her secrets, to work through the issues that haunted her from the past. He had helped her heal. Oh, I love that for her. Yes. They apparently, like, he bought an adjoining property and they made, like, a super farm and built a beautiful house together. And he loved her passion for animals. And when she decided to speak to the authorities and promised to testify, she said... 
this is something that has divided the community for a really long time. You might lose customers. You might lose people if I, I'm so outspoken about my involvement in this case. People might think badly about you. It could tarnish your reputation. And he was like, I don't give a shit. You're going to do what's right. You're going to do what you want to do. And you're not going to think about anything else. Love him. Yeah. So it was really nice. So I don't know exactly what happened to the two of them, but I hope they had many more happy years together. So that is the very slim silver lining on a very, very sad story. Go Anne. Yeah, go Anne. And I also, I'm glad that before Joe and Larry Dillon passed away that they felt some sense of justice for their son. In conclusion, I have like kind of like a high, low here, high point. Take care of your friends like that woman, Donna Sands. Like if you know they're in a bad spot, you call them, you hunt them down, you go to their house, you figure out if you can help them because she saved Dan's life and her life ended up being pretty darn good. Say the low is don't go into the woods with somebody who wants to murder you and guns like on either side. No victim shaming, but not the best. Yeah, your shooting club should only consist of people you trust. Yeah, and aren't sleep sleeping with your wife. With your wife. <laughs> yeah, don't, go, don't have a shooting club with people who sleep with your wife. Also, I'd say like the biggest red flag ever is if someone kills your dog, you should run. Yeah, I'd say so. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one kills your pet. Yeah. <laughs> love you guys. Bye. Bye. 